Good morning, students. Happy St. Patrick's Day. And today we are going to look at the automotive industry. In your syllabus, it says under the theme economy of Europe, we have to look at the car industry reflecting the spatial development of European industry. So that shows where it's located over time. So um, before further ado, I'd like to let you know where we're going to go, what handouts we're going to refer to, and so on. One of the handouts I gave you recently was the multinationals companies, uh, was the one that starts with Chapter 10, multinational companies in the European Union and Ireland. Otherwise, I'd like to call that as handout number 128. If you remember on the first page, it looks at the case study of Volkswagen, for example, and it goes on to looking at Ford Europe. Remember, I gave you that on a separate page. Then it goes also into vehicle manufacture in the EU, um, Fordism and lean production and so on. And then it goes a little bit further to how it's spread over Europe. Then later, I'd like to make a separate podcast referring to the uh, handout I gave you yesterday, which is handout 130. If you're wondering what handout 129 is, that is the handout of the car company uh, map skills that I gave you before. OK. So some key concepts to start with. Um, as we know, the European Union is part of the global economy and we are with lots of multinationals locating here and coming from the EU and also locating in other parts of the world. So um, what we should know specifically about the uh, automotive industry that is, of course, um, that cars are being produced. We're looking at the production of cars and these uh, there are different types of factories that help in this global supply chain or global assembly line. Now, what I mean by global assembly line is that some parts, for some um, parts of the world will develop um, the components, will be the component suppliers where the component suppliers are located, whereas other ones will have the vehicle assembly plants. And these are spread over both developing and developed countries. Um, so if you want to have a look at the um, global assembly line, um, you should go to page two of your handout, handout 128. And like we did in class, you can already see Volkswagens, for example, global assembly um, line, um, develop, relying on both developed countries and underdeveloped countries or developing countries. So the reason why all this is working is because you need to have very good communications and very good transport links and they have to be interconnected and it has to be, uh, it also has to be reliable transportation links. Okay, so the next example is on page three. That's on the separate page that didn't photocopy with the rest. And this is, of course, Ford Europe. So we know that the headquarters of Ford is in the USA. And uh, they employ 346,000 people over the whole world. Um, however, um, they have chosen to locate and to produce some of their, uh, their uh, cars in Europe. Now, that's smart because they are locating close to the markets and also they can produce it in perhaps in some places where the labour costs are not so high. So what Ford Europe does, instead of just producing everything from start to finish in one factory, it subcontracts the work to specialist suppliers throughout Europe. And in this way, they're able to reduce their costs. And again, this is only possible because of good transport links between the Ford vehicle assembly plants and the suppliers. And of course, the other part of the bargain is that the 
suppliers have to be able to guarantee the quality of supplies and to be able to deliver on time. Now, that's important. Remember that phrase just in time. We will come back to it later. Generally speaking, how this is is done uh, spatially is that a lot of the more specialised, more complex are, uh, components or higher value components are located in the core regions. And there they have the skilled workers and the technology that's needed. Um, and some of the lower uh, the lower value components are located in the periphery, peripheral uh, regions where the manufacturing is generally more automated. So the labour costs can also be lower and are not terribly high skilled. So for examples of that, if you look at figure 10.2, for example, you can see that um, in uh, Germany, they produce a core country. They produce things like the fuel inge- injection systems, um, all the systems, basically trans- transmission systems um, and braking systems uh, and so on. But also some lower quality goods like the uh, lower value goods, for example, the steering wheels. Whereas if you look at Spain, if you look at uh, there, they produce in Forencia, sorry if my pronunciation, uh, wheel centre caps and uh, doorboard moulding. So that's the piece of wood or plastic or whatever that's on the inside of your door. So not terribly complicated. That's just an example. And just one more thing about Ford. On page four, you can see that the idea is is to concentrate only on a small or limited range of models. And then that allows each plant, another word for factory, to specialize in uh, their production. So that makes them more efficient at producing. They're not trying to spread their expertise over a whole wide range of areas. And they're able to be distributed to all the different, uh, through the Ford sales offices, uh, located in all of the European uh, countries. Now I'd like to take a closer look at uh, the historical view of how vehicle manufacture evolved in Europe. So if we go to page six, for example, in your handout, you see that in World War, after World War II, uh, the car industry became a major growth uh, industry and um, because it had what, what Europe, ne- Europe had, what it needed. So basically the raw materials, which were steel and also the component parts that could be easily manufactured here. So that means the engines, the electrical circuits and all the rest. So this was a huge benefit for Europe because um, they created a lot of employment and of course uh, the jobs were relatively well paid so that created a positive multiplier effect. So it became a key activity in many of the core regions in Europe. So when you when it's, this started off you're talking about Greater Paris, that's the larger area of Paris, southern Germany, Stuttgart, Munich and northern Italy in uh, Turin for example. So how did it develop? Well, until that famous year of 1973, the vehicle industry in Western Europe developed really quite strongly. The automotive agency or the car industry, all of these are the same words, basically the same terms, developed really quite strongly. And what happened in 1973? Apart from the most important member of the European Union, Ireland, for example, the UK and Denmark also joining, it's also the time of the first big oil crisis. There was one, of course, in in the 1970s, and there was a later one that came a little bit later as well that caused problems. What effect did this have? Well, it caused an economic recession and the economic recession reduced the market demand for cars. But also on top of that, another negative was that the the petrol prices increased and that added uh, the expense of running a car. So even those people who might have been thinking about buying a car actually became even less and less affordable for people. So as a result, there was a fall in uh, demand and a resultant fall in production. 
So in the 1980s, there was a bit of a recovery. Um, uh, there was a decline, and the reasons for that was there was a decline in the oil prices in 1986, um, starting to set up the single European market in 1987, the idea of having more free trade in between the new um, the member states of the European Union, the prospect with the fall of communism, for example, and the prospect of new economies joining the European Union afterwards, um, really looked, made the automotive industry look really quite good. But there were some other problems um, that, that uh, kind of caused issues for the automotive industry in Europe. Um, in the 1990s, there was another recession and uh, the market for cars was less positive. So people were less wanting to have cars. And also for the first time, they were coming into competition with lower priced and also highly efficient foreign car imports. So this caused a problem. And uh, basically, Europe, Europe had a decline in uh, their production of cars or their output of cars by 2 million in that period of time, especially in 1992 to 1993. But also um, another issue that they were facing was their competition with the, the Japanese imports and transplants. Now, up until 1970, there was only 45,000 Japanese cars being imported into the EU. But by 1985, 750,000 uh, cars were being imported into the EU. And uh, this um, this caused the Japanese companies, of course, to think a little bit, OK, hang on, maybe we're missing a trick here. Maybe we should not just be importing our cars and paying all those import tariffs. But what about actually uh, we even think about expanding our uh, production into Europe? But before that, the European Union could see that uh, the Japanese uh, companies were uh, an issue. So they tried a number of things. The first thing they did was um, they tried to use import tariffs on cars coming in from outside the EU. Now, as you know, the European Union is a trade bloc, which means that there is free um, trade within the European Union members. Um, within the European Union members... Um, hold on. So, as I was saying, um, in order to reduce the threat, the European Union decided to come up with a number of uh, responses. So the first was import tariffs, for example, and also quotas. Now, a quota is uh, the amount, uh, an, a limit or an absolute limit on how many cars can be imported from a certain place or a certain type of car, for example, or a certain product. And the tariffs, of course, make the cars that are being imported um, less attractive because it's an extra tax that is added to the price of the car so that could make it less attractive. So the idea is trying to encourage European Union citizens to buy cars from France or Germany or Italy or even Spain, for example. Now, they did this for a period of time uh, with uh, to in order to protect domestic producers, so that's producers from within the EU, for example, Renault from France or Fiat um, from Italy. And that did help, um, but it was really kind of a short-term solution because uh, the Japanese then came up with this idea of manufacturing within Europe. And this, this was really quite clever for them because they could, number one, get close to the market, and number two, um, get around this, uh, find kind of a way around these import tariffs. So... Um, 
basically what they did was they decided to uh, locate um, or to uh, produce as much as they could within the EU. Europe again came up with a response to this and they said in order to get free access to the EU market, a Japanese car would need to have 80% of its component parts made in the EU. And this was something called the local content rule. So um, this was helpful to a certain extent, but maybe not completely. So uh, Britain in particular received quite a lot of new uh, transplants coming from um, from Japan. And um, they were happy because cars were manufactured. These plants had free access to the EU market. Um, but the European manufacturers were, of course, nervous because they, as many of these companies had located in Britain, they likened Britain a little bit to an airport car or an aircraft carrier. So that's like a big ship that has that allows car or that allows uh, planes to take off from. You've probably seen them in pictures of you know wars in the Gulf, for example, American aircraft aircraft carriers. And they said, well, Britain having so many of these Japanese companies was a little bit the same in that they were. Britain was becoming a base from where Japan could launch all its um, its cars into Europe. So um, they were Europe was still a bit nervous about this and weren't completely happy with the situation. So the third way in which the uh, European companies decided to deal with the Japanese threat was to think about restructuring the car industry. Now, I'm on page eight of handout 128 at the top of the page. What When they examined the production methods of the Japanese companies, they thought that they were really quite efficient. And the European companies realized that if they were going to compete at all, they would need to change their own production methods. So Europe had used Fordism or Fordist production methods, and they needed to move towards the more Japanese-style lean production methods. So what is Fordism? First of all, Fordism is a limited range of standard um, products are being produced, whereas, for example, with lean production, you're able to produce a lot more, uh, a greater variety of products. In Fordism, you're talking about a large volume of output. That's the most important thing. And But, however, in lean production, the Japanese form of, of producing, they thought that quality was more important than quantity, which was a, a good idea. So then the third main difference then is Fordism. They had rigid methods of produ of production, which means assembly line technology. Now, an assembly line is like that kind of um, conveyor belt where, you know, I remember I drew on the board this strange car that has different parts being assembled at different parts, a different on along a different path within the same factory. That's the assembly line. But um, in lean production, the um, what they put more emphasis on is on more flexibility of production technologies. Uh, for Fordism, they wanted large numbers of assembly line workers and doing a very repetitive or monotonous job. But in lean production, they, the workers were expected to be more skilled and more flexible in performing their jobs. And I'm sure that their jobs were also more satisfactory for them as well. Um, big thing was they used a large number of, for Fordism, is they used a large number of components components and these were stockpiled at the plant. Um, that means that they had they bought all the pieces that they needed. They had them already in the plant um, and they kept them there. So the storage there so that's expensive and it takes space and time and all the rest. Whereas the lean production um, kind of methods 
we're focusing more on not stockpiling, but on just-in-time production. Now, you'll remember um, JIT, J-I-T, just-in-time production, which means that the components are delivered on time for when they're just when they're needed, which means no storage space needed, no storage time time needed, no, ex, no extra cost in that respect. But what you really do need is... Um, an immediate and constant flow of inputs, which means that you need to have absolutely reliable suppliers and absolutely excellent and non-questionable uh, forms of transport and communication methods. Um, good, that's it. So one final thing that the European car manufacturers did is that once once they'd adopted the lean production is that they became more competitive, of course. Um, they did a lot more investment in new machines and technologies, robotic equipment, for example, especially in the newer plants that opened. And also the very last thing they did was they closed the old inefficient plants, um, which made them more successful as companies, of course, but had huge huge amounts of uh, unemployment as a result. And this was only possible because um, the machines replace labor on the assembly line of car plants. So now I'm on page eight of the handout and looking at a new part of the text that we haven't looked at before in class. So this is the location of the vehicle manufacturer in Western Europe. So what you can see is if you look at the next page on figure 5.17 this now just bear in mind this is from an old book so this is a little bit historical at this point and we'll come to that a little bit later you can see that in the past in the 80s and the 90s both the core and the peripheral regions were areas for vehicle manufacturing let's talk about first of all the core so the core were the earliest places and the places with the largest area uh, concentrations of industry so you're talking about um the west Midlands in the UK, for example, Greater Paris, London, Turin, and the South Rhinelands and Bavaria. All of these had most of the um, manufacturing attractions that it needed in the 1960s when these factories started. Uh, what were those attractions? So the first one, if you go to the next page, page nine, you can see that there's an access to a prosperous and growing market. Prosperous meaning they have money to buy cars. Large pool of may of labor, possessing a variety of skills. That's really good. Access to component suppliers, very important. Good transport systems to be able to assemble the inputs and supply the markets. And finally, large areas of land. Now, um, they did focus more in the core areas um, for some parts of their production. Um, the more high value parts, of course, uh, the core areas focus a little bit more on the high quality cars because the expertise, the capital and the research and development was located there. So that's why you'll see around um, uh, Turin, for example, Fiat and Paris, Renault, for example, and why Germany remained for a long time the largest um, car producer country with Audi, BMW, Daimler-Benz and Porsche. Um, but also it moved also a certain extent from the core areas and moved towards the peripheral areas. Um, and the more standardized vehicles and the cheaper family production focus more on the peripheral areas. Now, why did they move to the peripheral areas? Well, one of the things that was, well, there was three main reasons. The first thing were the government incentives. So these were things, for example, where the government tried to attract car companies to come and locate in their in their regions. So in the, and this came, these incentives came in the form of capital grants, for example, for new factories. That means the government pays money in order 
order to say, look, if you want to locate your factory here, we will pay you some money towards the building of your factory, for example, or even advanced factories, which are factories built in advance of them even arriving. Um, also tax benefits, um, uh, also labor training schemes, and of course, really important, upgrading the regional infrastructure. So for example, the transport links, especially roads, for example, and that would be important in helping to reduce the costs. Um, so these were, this was the first reason why they decided to move to the peripheral regions. So that, that's the government incentives. Second region, reason is that um, these areas had three natural kind of uh, attractions, cheap land, cheap labor, and, um, and capital was available as well. So these were all things uh, that were an advantage for locating in, the, in a peripheral area. And you might wonder a little bit about the skills. Well, um, basically because they were using this assembly line technology and basically repetitive work, repetitive skills, it didn't mean that um, that they needed high-skilled workers. They could use relatively low-skilled workers um, and people with a lack of uh, traditional manufacturing skills were still able to work there. So what kind of areas did they go to in the periphery? Well, sometimes they were attracted to depressed industrial regions or marginal rural areas. So, for example, if you take uh, the example of some coal mines, for example, where there had been former coal mining areas, for example, Bochum with Opal or South Wales with Ford, for example, um, unemployed uh, miners and steel workers, they were really anxious to find alternative work and the government really uh, was happy to uh, help reduce the unemployment rates there as well. And the third real uh, factor then were to do with the transplant operations. So where did they locate? Well, many of them also were attracted towards uh, the peripheral locations because they were using lean production and they were dealing with people. They found workers there who were anxious for work and were ready to commit themselves to a company. So they wanted to be as flexible as possible, which are all key components for being uh, working in lean production. So on top of that, the governments, of course, decided that they were going to um, try and attract this foreign direct investment by these these companies locating in in um, peripheral regions, and um, Britain, in particular, was very successful in attracting many of these companies. Uh, many of the areas had. Um, you can see in a minute on figure uh, 5.18 on page 11, you can see five different locations. So uh, Shotton, Sunderland, Burniston, Longbridge and Swindon, for example, were car companies from Honda, Rover, Toyota, Nissan and again Toyota. And uh, these Japanese transplants were indeed using um, Britain as an aircraft carrier ready to launch their uh, their cars into a ready European market. Um, yes. So this completes our um, summary of handout 128. Um, there will be another podcast later. I hope you enjoyed listening to it. And if I am speaking too fast and you can't understand, please go and take the time to go and have a look at handout 128 again and everything should become clear. Thank you.